Thank you for listening to CG Life with Steve Quartz. It's my hope that today's message will help you find and live the extraordinary life Jesus gives. After listening to this podcast, I'd like to invite you to connect with me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram for more updates and resources. We've been looking together for the past many months at spiritual warfare, spiritual warfare. We said that every believer faces one of three enemies on a regular, consistent basis. The world around them, the uh, supernatural enemy of the devil above them, and finally, that enemy they find within them called the flesh, called the flesh. We've uh, been looking at each of these, looking at their, their characteristics and qualities, and looking at how the Bible instructs us to engage them as we are uh, engaged by them. Now, we're spending some time, we spent some time looking at the enemy of the flesh that we called the traitor who lives inside us just before my uh, sabbatical began. And so I gave you about a five-week break from uh, dealing with the flesh. I'm hoping you didn't fall off the wagon and go south. I'm hoping you did. I hope you're doing all right. But we want to pick that back up again today and look at this enemy this traitor who lives inside of us. I want you to take your Bibles, if you have one, or pick up your smartphone and look with me this morning at Galatians chapter 5. We'll be looking together at Galatians chapter 5 and verses 13 through 25. Galatians 5, chapter, verses 13 through 25. Now, as you make your way there, there's something I want to say to you as we begin. As I have prepared for this message and looked again and dug into the book of Galatians, I was struck uh, for uh, the uh, umpteenth time by the way in which the Apostle Paul speaks to the matter of freedom. He speaks to the matter of freedom, and he says again and again and again in multiples of ways to those believers in Galatia, it was for freedom that Christ set you free. Don't step away from your freedom. Don't abandon your freedom in Christ. Christ died to set you free. Christ died to keep you free. Don't step away from your freedom. And uh, one of the great realities that we're living in right here, right now, is that in this cultural moment of ours, with all of the conflict we're experiencing, with all of the chaos we're experiencing, with all of the confusion we're experiencing, part of what we're witnessing in our cultural moment is something that is very ancient and very persistent. It is the cry of the human heart for freedom, for genuine freedom. If you want to understand what's happening in our culture right now, if you want to understand what's transpiring with, with, in all of these issues that we're, we're grappling with as a nation, 
whether it be critical race theory or gender identity or diversity and equity and inclusion or the tyranny of the government or the intrusion of the government into our private lives, whatever issue is before us, I'm, I'm wanting you to see, I'm challenging you to see that behind all of these issues is ultimately the cry of the human heart to be free. I want to be free. My, my heart yearns to be free. I want to be free to be who I am. I want to be free to guide my life. I want to be free to shape my life. I want to be free to shape the direction of the world in which I'm living in. And all of the conflict, all of the chaos, all of the confusion that is present in our culture is ultimately driven by this deep, human need, this deep human desire for freedom. And part of what Paul is about in his letter to the Galatians is to say to the Galatians, by way of reminder, to say to them, this is what true freedom is. This is how true freedom is found. This is how true freedom is received. This is how it is kept. And finally, this is how it is lost. And he says to them again and again, don't lose your freedom. Here's what it really is. Here's how it is is actually obtained. Here is how it is received. Here's how it's kept. Here's how it's lost. Don't lose it. Because in Christ, he's saying to the believers in Galatia, you have come to have the freedom that every human heart longs for, cries for, yearns for. Now, as we come to look at this classic passage on the flesh... I want you to see with me that ultimately Paul's answer to how believers should live their lives in this struggle they have with the flesh, that traitor inside of them, is ultimately anchored and answered by the answer Christ is to the freedom we live longing for. Bear that in mind as together we look at Galatians chapter 5, beginning at verse 13. And he says, for the umpteenth time, he mentions freedom, for the umpteenth time, he says, verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh." For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other to keep you as believers from doing the things you want to do, from doing those things that in Christ you desire to do. There is this conflict. There is this battle. There is this struggle that goes on in in the uh, inner lives of every single genuine follower of Jesus between the flesh and the spirit, the flesh and the spirit. And the upshot of it is if a believer does not know how to live with that conflict inside, if they don't know how to live with that ongoing battle within, 
what will happen is what they desire to do for the sake of Christ, they won't be able to do because they don't know how to handle their flesh. The flesh will win every single time. So he's making this point. Be very careful. Watch carefully. This is what's going on inside you. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. You can know when the flesh believers, he's saying, you can know when the flesh has risen up. You can know when the flesh is, is uh, angling for control, angling for power in your life. Here's how you know it. When you see the evidence of sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like this. When you see this in your life, when you see any of this in your life, not all of this, just any part of this in your life, when you see this in your marriage, when you see this in your family, when you see this in your life group, when you see this in your church, when you see this in your community, when you see this in your nation, you know the source of this is always the human flesh, that side of us that is anti-God that wants its way and wants to have its say, that side of us that is driven by certain desires and passions to have, to own, to possess, to, make, to be made much of, all of those things represent the flesh. These are evidences. Now, the flesh is a subtle thing. It is a sly thing. We can't look at it. It is, it is an invisible thing. But what Paul is saying is you can know when it's at work by the works it produces. Anytime you see anything like this, you can be absolutely sure it is the consequence of that old nature called the flesh. I warned you, Paul says, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul's not saying you're saved by your works. What he's saying is the marks or the evidence of a true follower of Jesus is that these are not habitual practices that remain in their lives over time. They are not constantly there. Some of these things will show up from time to time in the life of a believer, but they will not remain in the life of a believer. They will not be sustained in a life of a believer because they cannot be. They cannot be. But if they are, if they are sustained and kept over time, you can be sure. You've never come to know God's King Jesus. You've never entered his kingdom. But he says, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit, the results of the Spirit, the consequences of the Holy Spirit in a person's life is love. In a church, love. In a marriage, love. In relationships, love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And it strikes me as I read that, I can go on and say this as well. And a, a person who does not have faith in Christ, whose life has not been transformed by him, they can have a few of these things, but they can't sustain it over time. 
The beauty of a, of a new life in Jesus is because the Holy Spirit has come to indwell you, he can take you, the most impatient person on the planet, and begin to do a work in you. So suddenly, patience becomes part of who you are. Does anybody need to, did anybody here need to hear that word? Any impatient? You're going, no, no, I want you to get on to goodness. Okay, okay, yeah. All right, all right. It's good news. It's good news. One of the evidences that my life has been transformed by Jesus is I am not the same person today I was yesterday because he, the Spirit of God is constantly working in me. Now, I'm not perfect and I don't have it all together, but I look more like Jesus than I did. And that's always a sure evidence that God is at work in me and that I know his king and I'm a part of his kingdom. And those, look at verses 24 and 25, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. He's wrapping this up for us. If we live by the Spirit, he says, finally, as a way of challenge, by way of challenge, let us also walk by the Spirit. Now, our Heavenly Father, this morning as we've opened your word and as we're gathered around it, Lord, we confess Eternal God, the God of freedom, the God who redeems, the God who sets broken people free and heals them, we confess to you that we need you, and Father God, we need your word. We need the word that you have to speak to us this morning, and so we want to pray, we want to ask, Father, that you would, by your spirit, through your word, speak to our hearts and speak to our minds, and give to us this morning a fresh understanding of what it is to be free in Christ. Give to us a fresh understanding of what it means to be completely his. Give us a fresh understanding of what it is we're up against as we deal with our own flesh, as we engage this traitor who lives inside of us. We ask it in Jesus' name declaring our dependence on you. Amen and amen. Now, what Paul says to us in our passage uh, is vital for believers because he, he actually explains three things to us. He explains, first of all, why it is that believers crave sin and struggle with it even after finding new life in Christ, which is typically a huge problem for new believers. Why am I still sinning? I thought I'd been set free. Um, secondly, he explains where this constant struggle over sin actually comes from. And then thirdly, he shows believers how they can overcome in this struggle with, with sin and with the flesh. Paul first helps us to see the believers crave sin and struggle with it even after finding new life in Christ because their flesh, their old anti-God nature that once dominated them actually still remains active in them. And this flesh, this sin nature inside of them is always looking, always looking for opportunities to satisfy its cravings for the things that God calls sin. When believers don't confront this reality in the right way, this flesh inside of them, the continual craving for sin can be overwhelming to them and cause them to fall into a pattern of sin despite the fact that they've been set free by Christ from their slavery to sin. 
Secondly, Paul also shows us in this passage that this ongoing struggle with sin comes from the fact that alongside the flesh inside of us also dwells the Holy Spirit of God. If the Spirit weren't present in us, we wouldn't sense any conflict with our flesh. There would be no conflict. The flesh would be the way in which we live. In fact, the flesh was the way in which we lived before we came to know Jesus. The mere presence of the Holy Spirit inside a believer engages the flesh and it enrages the flesh. Why? Well, because what the flesh wants and works for, Paul says, is directly opposed to what the Spirit wants and what the Spirit works for. And so believers can feel many times like a, a, a battlefield. You ever feel like you're a battlefield as a follower of Christ? You ever feel that struggle? You ever feel that constant tension? If you do, that's actually a good sign. Because true believers are a battlefield. We are ground that the flesh either wants to recover or the spirit wants to claim and keep. And so the flesh is constantly demanding that we be and do what we know is contrary to the new life we've been given in Christ. At the same time, the spirit is constantly working to make us new like Christ. And so we have this rather disheartening struggle against sin. Now, what is the real point of challenge for many believers is that Paul insists all through his letter to the Galatians again and again in lots of different ways that because Christ has set believers free, believers can and they should live consistently free from sin and the demands of the flesh. Not perfectly free, but consistently free. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Just go up to the top of the page or scroll up on your phone. Paul says, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Now, at first, that almost sounds nonsensical, of course. If Christ set me free, he set me free for freedom. But Paul's point here is this. It is for a particular kind of freedom that Christ has set you free. And if you understand the kind of freedom that Christ has set you free for, then you will understand that you literally can live free. You literally can live free of the flesh and you can live more and more free of sin. Now, I've given this a lot of thought, and it seems to me that when it comes to this whole matter of sin, believers actually fall into one of three categories. And if you're taking notes, I'd encourage you to write this down because chances are pretty good you'll find yourself in one of these three positions. In fact, I'll go ahead and tell you, you're already in one of these three positions right here as you sit. Now, don't, don't try to test your spouse, your children, or anybody else. Don't worry about where they are. Just think about where, where you are. All right, let's do that. That way we'll save a lot of marriages, keep some relationships healthy. So don't, don't use this to test each other. Use this to test yourself. But there are three, three different kinds of believers and three different ways in which believers relate to sin. There are, first of all, those believers who take sin personally. Then there are those believers who take sin casually and finally, I see that there are Christians who take sin seriously. Some take it personally, 
Some take it casually. Some take it seriously. And very often, most believers are a combination of the two as they live out their lives. Now, those who take sin personally know in their, in their hearts and minds, because of the indwelling Holy Spirit, that that sin shouldn't be active in them, and they know it shouldn't be repeated in them, but they know it is. And as a result of it, they take it very personally. They blame themselves, and they just say, I'm so weak. If I could just be more like this person or that person, if I were just stronger, but I'm just so weak. And then Sometimes as well, they'll, they'll not only blame it on themselves as being too weak, but they'll blame it on their situations as being too strong. I was just overwhelmed. I, I couldn't resist. This thing came into my life, and I, I could not. I could not hold back. So I'm walking down the aisle at Food Lion, and I'm going by this, this freezer case, and my eye just catches moose tracks and chocolate ice cream. And I knew I didn't need, I didn't need it, and I knew I shouldn't do it. And I tried to tell myself no, but the situation was just too strong. I was minding my own business and there it caught my eye and I, my mind just went to the creamy, chocolatey taste of rich ice cream striking my tongue and my palate and on a hot day. And then... Just when I thought I would pull away, I, I thought of those moose tracks, those delicious little morsels of peanut butter covered in chocolate, nestled in that delicious chocolate ice cream. And suddenly, before I knew it, my hand had grasped the handle and flung it open, and out came the smell of that cold refrigerator and on a hot day. And and I found myself taking hold of one of those packages and there was absolutely no fighting it. I, I'm just so weak and the situations are just so strong. You say, Steve, you, you, you speak like you're, you're talking out of experience. And, and I just want to say, mind your own business. I told you not to test anybody else but yourself. But many of us take sin personally, and we play the role of a victim, and they, basically we lay down and say, there's, there's nothing I can do about it. I'm too weak or the situation is too strong. There are others of us who take sin rather casually. Now, Christ, uh, Paul rejects the idea that, that we can take sin personally. He says, no, 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 no. You, you need to remember, Christ has set you free. You are free. There is no sin that you do not already possess freedom from in Christ. He has set you free. He, he, it's not that he will set you free. He has set you free. You can't play the role of a victim. Christ has already made a way for you. He's a way-making God. 
Those who take sin casually, they have an attitude that says basically this, well, sin happens. Sin happens. God knows it. I know it. Everybody knows it because everybody does it. And when they walk into a worship setting like this, they're pretty comforted because they're looking around and everybody else going, there's a sinner, and there's a sinner, and there's a sinner, and there's a sinner. We're all just a bunch of sinners, so my sin is just, you know, everybody does it. It's a problem. Everybody knows it. What can you do about it? You just got to be kind of casual with it. Sin happens. It's not going to end until Jesus comes again, and so there you go. Now, there's a measure of truth here, but only part of the truth. The power of sin in us, the scripture teaches us, isn't going to be completely removed until Christ returns and we're made just as he is, perfect. The day is going to come when the scripture says we shall see him and we shall be what? Like him. Perfect. And yes, believers are now set free from the eternal penalty of sin. And yes, believers have been forgiven for their sin, but this freedom from sin's penalty is not a license to sin. It's rather a freedom for holiness. It is rather a freedom to become holy as God is holy. So Paul will have nothing to do with this casual attitude towards sin either. This holiness is an active requirement for all who are in the family of God because God the Father is himself perfectly holy. And a believer's fellowship with him, their ability to abide with him, to do life with him requires in them and from them an ongoing pursuit of holiness. So sin in the the lives of God's children matters deeply and decisively to him For it is for freedom from sin that his son gave his life. If I had to choose one of these three options, that of taking sin personally or taking it casually or taking it seriously, I would say the predominant one in in our culture is that of taking sin casually. But for me to take sin in my life casually to make little of it, as if it really doesn't matter, is in all reality to take Christ casually. It's to make little of his cross death for me. It it is to return to the old ways of making life about me and about what my old nature wants and about what my old nature craves. It is to, to have its passions and desires rule me and reign over me. It is to abandon the life that Christ calls me to, a life that is lived with him for others. And that's why Paul says what he says in verses 13 and 14. He can't countenance this position either. And so he says, listen, I want to remind you again. You were called to freedom, brothers. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. Don't use it as an opportunity for yourself, the fact that you've been forgiven. Don't use it as an opportunity to sin. Use the fact that you've been forgiven, set free of the, the uh, uh, power of sin, even though the presence of sin is still there in your, in your flesh. Use that freedom now, not for yourself, but for others. I just want you to know that when I went to Food Lion, I actually went for somebody else. 
Now, I'm not going to tell you who it is. But I was serving, and I really wasn't falling to temptation. I was just helping somebody else fall to temptation. That's what I was doing. But anybody who has been in the midst of this struggle knows how hard it really is and how impossible it really is. Don't believe it? Let me give you an assignment. You ready? Go home today, set your timer for 120 minutes. Declare that you will not sin once during that 120 minutes. Declare that you will do absolutely nothing and think nothing that would be contrary to the will of God and the character of Jesus for 120 minutes, for two hours. Then go about your business. You will see how hard it is. And when that doesn't work, I'll give you a second assignment. Try again for 60 minutes, just 60 minutes. Go in half for one hour, for one hour. Spend your hour, go, go about your business, but spend your time, no sin, and with the complete character of Christ about your life. When that doesn't work, try again for 30 minutes. When that doesn't work, try again for 15 minutes. When that doesn't work, try for five. I dare you, try for five. What you will find is you are personally no match for the flesh that lives inside of you. If you try to wrestle your own flesh to the ground, you will lose every single time. Have you noticed, believers, that even when you wake up in the morning, the battle is on? Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that? My wife pulled the covers off of me again. I mean, you've only been up for 38 seconds and already, already the flesh is kicking in. This is not the way it should be. This is not how I want my life to be. You, if you're a follower of Jesus, you will find yourself in the, in the midst of a fierce battle. So how do we overcome this? How do we, how do we overcome in this struggle against sin rather than being overcome? How can believers overcome in this struggle with sin and then see their flesh defeated. I want you to notice with me that Paul encourages believers in our passage by reminding them that they're not helpless uh, uh, in this battle of two opposing forces. And yes, if, if believers yield to their flesh, they will be enslaved to it again. They will live in spiritual defeat and misery. But Paul says, if you yield to the spirit in you, you will live your life in a growing holiness. You'll do God's will gladly from the heart, not under compulsion, but with victory and joy. But how? But how? But how? Paul offers us three ways that believers can be involved in this inner struggle and cooperate with the Holy Spirit. He says, first of all, they can know the signs of defeat and victory. He says, secondly, they can cultivate the habit of crucifixion. And thirdly, he says, they can cultivate the habit of affirmation. Because the flesh and the spirit both have intents and purposes that not only oppose each other, but also play out in our lives when their intents and purposes are being fulfilled, the results can be observed. And so Paul says, you can know when the flesh is rising up and working its way out in you. Look at verses 19 to 21. 
This is what you'll see coming out of your life, coming out of your marriage, coming out of your family, coming out of your life group, coming out of your church, coming out of your community. Look at verses 22 to 23. When the Spirit of God is rising up in you and when he's working out his will and his purposes, this is what you'll see. Part of having and experiencing victory in Christ is knowing the signs of the flesh at work and knowing the signs of the fruit of the Spirit. There are also, though, two habits to cultivate. And we looked in depth last time we were together at these signs and fruit. There are two habits believers can cultivate. I want to look at the first one with you this morning. The first is the habit of crucifixion. The second is the habit of affirmation. And we find them presented to us both in verses 24 to 25. Let's unpack, first of all, this habit of crucifixion. Paul says in verse 24, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Now, I'll grant you immediately, this sounds gruesome. It isn't attractive, but it is meant to be shocking. This is such a serious issue in the life of a believer. He says, if you're really going to live in victory, if you're really going to overcome, then this is where you're going to have to press on to. It's one thing to know the signs of the flesh. It's another thing to know the sign of the spirit. But if you're going to experience victory, you're going to have to be able to cultivate the habit of crucifying the flesh. Healthy believers pursuing holiness always practice a deliberate putting to death of the old nature with Jesus by his spirit. Now, this isn't the first mention of believers being crucified. Uh, In an earlier well-known passage from Galatians, Paul says by way of testimony that every believer at the very beginning experiences crucifixion. Take your Bible, turn to Galatians 2.20, or take your phone and flip up to chapter 2, verse 20. Here's that famous passage. The scripture says this, Paul says, I have been in the past tense by someone else, passive voice. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live now, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Those who belong to Jesus have been crucified, Paul says, along with Jesus. This is is a crucifixion that is done for them in the past. Paul explains that those who have put their trust in Christ find that their lives have become eternally united with his. So much so, my life has been so united by God's grace through faith in him, so united to Christ that I can say when he lived a perfect life, I live. When he died, I died. When he was raised, I was raised. When he, when he, uh, where he is seated at the right hand of the Father right now, Paul says, we too are already seated with him in glory. That's how intimately related a believer's life is to the life of Jesus Christ. When he was crucified, I was crucified, died in my place. That's why we say one of the most beautiful explanations of the gospel is that he lived for me the life I should have lived but didn't. He died for me the death I deserve to die 
was raised to the life I always wanted and is coming again to take me to the home I always needed. It's because my life is intimately and eternally linked to his. So in a sense, I have been crucified. But I want you to notice something with me. In Galatians 5, what Paul is describing is an act of deliberate self-crucifixion that we carry out in the present. He's speaking metaphorically, of course, to, to describe a spiritual reality. But he's saying, not only have I been crucified, but watch this. I continue to crucify myself. Where does he get such an a extraordinary kind of uncomfortable idea? Does anybody have any ideas of where he got that idea? No takers, huh? How many of you grew up going to church? You were in Sunday school. What is the one right word, right, one right answer to almost every question? It starts with a J. <laughs> where does he get this idea? Jesus, yeah. I mean, Jesus put it this way. If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up a cross, crucify himself, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Being united to Christ and crucified with Christ is essential for our eternal salvation, but being faithful to Christ requires crucifying our flesh in an ongoing manner, day by day by day, taking up our cross, following him, taking up our cross, crucifying the flesh. Every believer has died with Christ and lives with him forever. But at the same time, every believer must die and keep dying to self for Christ in order to live with him faithfully now. And that's the point. And this is the first step to living daily the new life Jesus gives despite the easy presence of the old nature inside of us. What Paul is saying is that every believer uh, uh, is to live behaving like a condemned criminal and carrying his or her cross and self to a place of execution. We're actually to take that flesh, our willful and our wayward selves, and nail them to the cross. We do this practically with an ongoing awareness of the flesh, of constantly watching for it, and of being ready to take action against it, and then turning from the temptation or turning from the sin when flesh actually gets its way and turning back to Christ. It is in the turning the turning our backs on the flesh, the turning our backs on its craving, turning our backs on its passions, that we do this crucifying work. We turn our back, we leave the old life, crucified, determined to keep it there till its passions and its desires slowly expire. This is the first and the greatest secret of holiness. It means that when the flesh rises up to suggest that some passion, some desire be satisfied in you or in me, 
we recognize it immediately as a play for control. It means that when some jealous or hateful or lustful thought rises up into your mind, you kick it out at once. And you kick it out for what it is. The demand of a traitor whose suggestion always brings brokenness. What the flesh always suggests always sounds good. It always brings destruction. Can I tell you what I do personally? When that jealous or hateful thought comes up in my mind, when that anger or that bitterness raises up its ugly head, I'll tell you what I've learned to do, to put it back on the cross. I run to the cross of Jesus. I find for me, and I suspect that you will find for you, that it is very, very hard to envy and to keep envying, to hate and keep hating, to judge and keep judging, to criticize and keep criticizing, to be fearful or anxious when I have gone to the cross of Jesus and set my eyes on what he has done and what it means for me. Everything falls into proper perspective. Why would I envy you when already I have everything I ever needed in Jesus? What right do I have to hate you no matter what you've done to me? When I look at the cross and I realize I put him there because of what I did to him and still he loves me? The best way for me to put my flesh on the cross and keep it there is to turn to the cross of Jesus and keep my eyes on what he has done for me. And this is the rhythm of the Christian life. Sometimes the flesh, it just comes down off the cross. Has yours ever done that? You all are a quiet group today, very polite, very holy, I might add. I, I seem to be the only one who has problems. But just in case, <laughs> what, what you will find that in the course of living the Christian life, that the envy that you defeated once comes back. You've got to defeat it again. The hostility that you once dealt with comes back and you're going to have to deal with it again. But in the rhythm of nailing, leaving, and turning, 
with the help of the Holy Spirit, we'll talk about this next week, but with the help of the Holy Spirit, suddenly I'm less of a hater, more of a lover because of the process that the Spirit of God is guiding me through. Put it up, nail it up, turn, look to Christ. Put it up, nail it up, turn, look to Christ. (sighs) Put it up, nail it up, turn, look to Christ. Stay there. Don't you get down. Keep looking to Christ. No, 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 no. Keep looking to Christ. Keep looking to Christ. Envy? What envy? You say, oh, it's not that easy. No, I didn't say it was easy. It's a process. But it is a real process. And that is the first great step to true holiness. And God the Father, God the Son, And God the Holy Spirit loved nothing more than to see holiness rising up in the lives of those who belong to Jesus. Let me give this to you as we close. Here's a principle of the Christian life you must never forget. Not if you want to live in victory. Not if you want to bring joy to your master. What rises up from the flesh will take over your life if it is not put down. What rises up from the flesh will take over your life if it is not put down. So declare war on your flesh. Make no time, no room for it. Don't negotiate with it. Don't negotiate with that traitor inside of you. Turn your back on him or her. Crucify that old flesh. Leave it crucified. This is the first and ongoing step of victorious Christian living. Now, Paul's given us an exquisite gift here. There are a couple of applications I want to give you, and then we'll go. First of all, I want you to see with me that the crucifixion of your flesh that you need daily in order to live faithfully is a deliberate and a determined action. What Paul is recommending to us, my, my friends, th- this is not a hobby, You cannot deal with your flesh like it's a hobby. And if you're just dealing with your flesh on Sundays, then you've got a really good religious hobby that's not going to do you any good. This is a full-time job. This is not a part-time job. This is a full-time job because your flesh wants to come back just like kudzu in the south. You've got to stay after it or it will stay after you. You can have no pity for it. Even though the victim is the old you, 
You've got to keep guard and watch it, lest you be tempted to help it come down. Remember, the point of a cross in the first century was never to teach the victim a lesson. It was not a form of rehab. The point of a cross was execution. It was to bring life to an end and make sure that that life ended. And you and I have to be as pitiless with our flesh as the Romans were in the first century. Take everything you know in your life to be wrong. All of those passions that are so contrary to Christ, all of those desires that work contrary to his desire, nail them to the cross. Keep a close guard to ensure they stay nailed down. Do not take your eye off of Jesus, but keep your ear tuned to the flesh. Second thing I want you to see with me is the crucifixion you need will not produce immediate death. That was part of the horror of crucifixion in the first century. It's why the Romans used it. Death didn't come quickly. It came slowly. And the same is true of the death of our flesh. We've got to crucify our waywardness and our longings to go our own way, but we, we shouldn't expect the old us to die immediately. We, we can and we must die to ourselves and live to Jesus, but we, we mustn't expect the old self to fully disappear until Jesus appears. But at the same time, we can expect there to be more of him and less of us as faithfully we walk, putting it up, nailing it down, turning to Christ. Jesus Christ transforms lives. That is not empty talk. It is truth. There is not a life in this room Jesus cannot change. And if you belong to him today, he is already at work seeking by his spirit to change you. The question is, will you crucify the flesh, let it go, and turn to him and accept it will be the process that you are in for the rest of your life. But along the way, you will become more like Jesus. So with heads bowed and eyes closed across the room, first let me speak to believers you would say, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. That's your testimony. That's what you would say. When I ask you, what is your persistent, consistent place of defeat in your walk with Jesus? 
what immediately comes to your mind? Where does the flesh rise up more often than not? Where does it get most easily established in your life? Wherever that place is, I will explain it to you right now. It is because you love it too much to let it die. You may not play the victim. You may not say you're too weak. You may not say the situation is too strong. You may not say it doesn't matter unless you're prepared to now say the cross doesn't really matter. You have three options. And my question to you is, will you take that place in your life seriously? as seriously as God in Christ has taken it on the cross? If not, why? If not, why not? What else could he do for you that he's not already done? What more would you ask him to do? Will you stay so full of yourself that you will not let that thing go? Is the pleasure of sin for a season worth the pain you're already sowing into your life? Let it go. Nail it. Kill it. Have no mercy. Confess it. Name it. Tell the Lord exactly what it is. Ask it to forgive you. Tell him Jesus is far better. Tell him it doesn't even begin to compare. Turn your back. See Jesus. See what he's done for you. Ask him to forgive you.
there's no better place to be than in the presence and in the fellowship of Jesus. you've taken that step I want to ask you to do something wherever you are eyes closed heads bowed but wherever you are you say I've taken that step I've turned my back on something in my life I want you to stand up right freedom that Christ has set you free and where there is freedom there is joy and peace (laughs) and there is loved ones a life worth living okay I'm going to have to stop. I got to go preach somewhere near Raleigh tonight. (laughs) But I want you to see with clear eyes what Jesus promises, Jesus delivers. Let's walk, crucifying the flesh. All right. Amen. 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 Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoy these podcasts, take a moment to rate and review CG Life with Steve Kortz. My prayer is that God will continue to inspire and challenge you in Christ as week by week we apply the gospel faith to real life.